Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. I see a lot of visitors this morning as we have every week. Thank you for coming our way. I hope you'll give us a chance to meet and greet you after services this morning. We are finishing up a series. We have been doing this series on the different re-words in the Bible, the words that start with R-E, and we're ending this morning with rejoice, appropriately enough. Um, I want to invite you back tonight at 5 o'clock. Uh, we're going to start a new series that will continue on Sunday nights and Sunday mornings talking about spiritual warfare. I think one of the things that uh, has been clear and present during COVID, during all the different things going on in our world, the unrest, is that we are locked in a spiritual battle. It's not a physical one, although it may seem like it, but it's more of a spiritual battle. And we're going to talk about that over the next several weeks, and we'll start tonight. So I hope you'll come back with us, and then we'll carry on on Sunday morning and Sunday night from there. Thank you for being here. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, staying in the traces? Some of you a little older might have. Uh, this is a reference back to the colonial days when uh, wagons were pulled by horses and there was no paved roads. And so the wagons would cause these deep ruts and they would harden. And so over time, wagons would just fall into these ruts and it would take them where they need to go. It was much easier to pull the wagon for the horse. You ever heard of the Natchez Trace Parkway? You know, it goes from Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi. And there's even points on that parkway where you can look and you can see still those tracks or those ruts, those traces still in the ground. And I think that's analogous to our spiritual lives. I think our spiritual lives, for the most part, are lived in the traces or ruts, if you want to call them that, because most of our life is pretty mundane, isn't it? I mean, let's face it, our life is all about routine, probably 99.9% of it anyway. So we get up, we get the kids ready for school, we get breakfast, we feed ourselves, we haul the kids off to school, we go to work, we put in a full day, we get out of work, we go pick our kids up from school, we take them home, we cook them supper, we help them with their homework, we get them ready for bed, we go to bed ourselves, and we get up the next day and we do it all over again. That's life, rinse and repeat for most of us. And so because it's so mundane and so routine, some people want to change it up a little bit and they jump traces. So they, they jump traces by adding some sort of leisure pursuit, alcohol, pornography, drugs, an affair, something to liven up their life a little bit. But what they find out most often is they find themselves in a bigger rut than the one they were in. And so we have to remember that life is about glorifying God in the traces. It's not always about doing something grandiose for God. It's about just living for Him in the mundane, in the routine. Look with me at Philippians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, it reads like this. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also, help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all people. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As for the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, let's follow the thread here. Keep in mind that this letter would have been read aloud to the entire congregation. So somebody's going to stand up in front of the entire church and say, hey, Euodian Syntyche, can y'all just get along? I mean, what's your problem? Can you quit acting like junior high kids and just get along? They probably wanted to crawl under the pew if they had pews back then. The name Euodia means sweet smell. Syntyche means friendly. So in other words, they weren't living up to their name. And Paul is trying to get them to understand that this is about something bigger than you, right? Quit fighting and battling each other. Focus on the real enemy. Focus on the church. Focus on unity because that was a major theme for Paul throughout his letters. He doesn't get into minute detail about everything that was going on with their beef because it didn't matter. What mattered was the church. What mattered was unity. What mattered was the bigger picture. Then Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Really? Surely you got to be kidding, Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always? I mean, seriously? How am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord always? Have you seen my life? Have you seen what's going on in my life? I've got a mortgage. I've got groceries. I've got to buy gas. I've got maintenance on the car, car insurance, homeowner's insurance, health insurance, insurance on my insurance, federal taxes, property taxes, local taxes, credit cards, medical bills, doctor's appointments. My body is breaking down. My marriage is in the toilet. My boss is a jerk. And don't even get me started with what's going on in the world, the unrest and the politics, right? Then Paul moves from that to the Christian's thought life. And notice what he writes. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now understand, the Philippian letter is one of Paul's prison epistles, which means he wrote this letter while he was a jailbird. And therefore, the message is very different than the message we often glean from this, this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We slap it on the back of our warm-ups in basketball or you know, our t-shirts that we get associated with our sports team because after all, as long as I believe in Jesus, I can score that touchdown. I can score that goal. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As long as I believe, I, I'm going to get that job. I'm going to get that promotion. I'm going to get that spouse that I've always wanted. That's not Paul's message here. Not even close. Paul is saying that you can endure as long as Christ is on your side. He isn't telling Christians that they just need to, to dream bigger. He's telling them that they can endure when their dreams are crushed. He's not inspiring them to go out and conquer the world and chase their destiny. He's telling them that they can press on when the world conquers them. The purpose of this verse is not to tell you how you can be rich. The purpose of this verse is to tell you that you are rich. Because if you are in Christ, you have riches far beyond anything that this world has to offer. 
You see, Philippians 4.13 is not about achievement. It's about endurance. It's not about being able to achieve anything through Christ. It's about being able to endure anything through Christ. So if you find yourself sitting in a prison cell for preaching Jesus, then you can endure. If you find yourself mocked and beaten and ridiculed and flogged for, for preaching Jesus, then you can endure. If you have little food and possessions, you can find contentment because it's not about what you don't have, it's about what you do have in Jesus Christ. So in its proper context, Philippians 4.13 is all about contentment, and it fits a larger narrative. And the larger narrative that Paul is driving at through all of this is stay focused. Keep your eyes on the prize. That was his message to Euodia and Syntyche. Stay focused. Quit acting like children. Quit battling each other. We've got enough problems. The church doesn't need to be like days of our lives. It's not a soap opera. There's enough going on in the world around us. Focus on what matters most. Focus on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and commendable, he says. The world will get you down. Quit zeroing in on your circumstances and focus on what you have in Christ. Be content with being a child of God. Understand that life is about more than stuff. It's about more than possessions. Focus on the promise, not your predicament. And then notice again, verses 5 through 7. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And again, we're tempted to roll our eyes and say, come on, Paul, are you serious I mean, be, be anxious about nothing. You know, we, uh, we drive by church signs and we see things like, you're much too blessed to be depressed. Or, don't worry, be happy. comes on the radio. Worry ends where faith begins. You, you, you heard those things? I don't like those, those church signs. I don't like those statements. There are some people out there dealing with things that are far greater than we could ever imagine. And there are some people that are dealing with a, a clinical diagnosis of depression that, you know, it's not about the fact that they, uh, that they need to have more faith. It's not about that. It's not about trying harder, praying harder, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't like that message. And I don't think that's the message that Paul is delivering here. Paul knows his audience. And while, yes, we have a direct command in the Bible not to worry, Paul is not condemning the fact that they're anxious. He knows they're anxious. He knows what they're dealing with. God knows what we're dealing with, right? Sometimes we hear that. Well, the Bible says, direct command, do not worry, but I am worried. Well, don't worry, but I am worried. Well, stop because it's sinful and you're going to hell. Okay, well, now I'm worried about going to hell. It's a vicious cycle, isn't it? But that's not exactly what we're getting at here. It's not what Jesus was getting at. It's not what Paul is getting at. Paul is trying to steal their focus and put it on what matters. Worry is about focus, isn't it? You over-worry about what you're over-focused on. We often just want to deal with the emotion. But you got to go deeper because if you want to deal with worry effectively, then you've got to deal with what it's tethered to, right? you got to go past the emotion. So these, these little songs, Don't Worry, Be Happy, or You're Much Too Blessed to Be Depressed, you know, they don't do any good. Because it's only dealing with the emotion of what is being felt. we got to get to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem it's where your focus is. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the horizontal aspect of life? We live in the horizontal. And so we look around us and everything that we see in the horizontal screams curse, 
It screams problems, adversity, trials, and tribulations. We look forward, we look behind us, we look to the left, we look to the right, and what we see is the mess around us. And when we see the mess, when we look at the horizontal and see only the mess, what do we do? We go vertical, right? And the vertical is where we look up and we see God, who is going to make all things right. He wins. And because He wins, we win, right? The vertical is the constant. It's what's stable. The horizontal is always shifting and moving and changing. When everything around us is falling apart, we find hope in the vertical, what lies ahead. The vertical points us to who is in control. The vertical changes the way that we look at the mess that we're dealing with, and that's what Paul was doing. He was encouraging his readers to look up, to focus on the right things. And when you do that, you find a peace that is incomprehensible, one that you can't find in the horizontal. You find reason to rejoice. And isn't it interesting how so many times in Scripture, over and over again in the Bible, you find the command to rejoice tied to less than ideal circumstances. Have you noticed that? It's not about rejoicing when everything is going good. That's easy to do. But over and over again in the Bible, we see rejoice when things aren't going good. Rejoice in the horizontal because you serve a God that's in the vertical. So when the stock market plummets, when you have to file for bankruptcy, when your spouse is on their deathbed, when you lose a child, when your marriage is in the toilet, when everything in the horizontal seems to be unfair, when everything in the horizontal is falling apart, You go vertical, knowing and trusting in what you have in God. So we all really have a choice. It's not an easy one, but it's a choice to rejoice. Will we seek to celebrate God in the mess, or will we allow the mess to control us and rob us of our joy? You ever heard of Tantalus in Greek mythology? Tantalus was a guy who stole ambrosia and nectar and believed that he would take it back to his people and it would open divine secrets to them and they would live eternally. He was deemed a traitor and he was punished for all eternity. And you know what Tantalus's punishment for eternity was? He had to stand in a cool pool of water with a branch hanging over him that contained ripe, delicious fruit. And every time he reached up for that fruit, the limb, moved out of his reach. And every time he reached down to get some of that cool water to drink, the pool dried up. Everything that he needed and wanted was, was so elusive. And that's, that's us, isn't it? Why does joy seem so elusive? Why is it that we pursue it so hotly and we never can seem to find it? Well, I think the reason is, is because, well, twofold, really. Joy is not a pursuit in and of itself. It's a byproduct of something else. But also, we tend to pursue something that is a cheap imitation of joy. It's called happiness. Notice what Paul writes. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. In thee is the key phrase. We can rejoice when we're in the Lord. It's in His presence It's in a relationship with Him that we find joy. Too many people are searching for joy's cheap imitation, known as happiness. And they're searching for it in conditions and circumstances. Happiness is self-conscious. 
It's hollow. It's a shallow pursuit. Happiness will never completely deliver. You'll find hints of happiness in the world around you, but you will never be truly filled by pursuing happiness because happiness is cheap. It's artificial. It's a knockoff. It doesn't fulfill. But here's the deal. Joy is a byproduct of pursuing something bigger. Just as you don't pursue happiness because it's cheap and hollow and superficial, you don't pursue joy either. You pursue God, the source of joy. And when you pursue God, when you pursue Jesus Christ, joy is the byproduct. I want you to notice that Paul is calling the Philippians. He's commanding them to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice after after he acknowledges the good work that God had promised to bring to completion in chapter 1, verse 6. After Paul discusses earthly trials and how they in no way compare to our heavenly hope in chapter 1, verse 23. After Paul recounts the high cost that Christ paid, uh, Christ paid to save sinners in chapter 2, verse 8. After Paul affirms his true identity that is found in Christ in chapter 3, verse 12. And after he declares that no matter what happens in this life, our citizenship is in heaven in chapter 3, verse 20. Then he says, rejoice. He's getting them to focus on the vertical. Focus on what truly matters, and when you do that, you can rejoice. However, there are two very important things to remember when we talk about rejoicing, and we can't miss these. Number one, joy is not the absence of sorrow. You know, all too often we feel like that uh, we have to remove the tension. We have tension between sorrow and joy, but the Bible doesn't seem to remove that tension. The Bible seems to talk about them going together. If you've noticed in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, people aren't too far between one of the two, right? The distance between sorrow and joy aren't, isn't, very, isn't very big, right? The gap is not very wide. Listen to some words of the psalmist. To you, Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes wasted away from grief, my soul and my body too. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. My strength has failed failed because of my guilt and my body has wasted away. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? I want you to notice the honesty in those statements. This isn't a fake it until you make it mentality. This is honesty from the psalmist to say, God, I'm mad, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm angry, I'm sorrowful, I'm worried, I'm anxious. I think I've told you before, I, I sometimes have people come to me and say, you know, Chris, if I'm being honest, I, I'm just kind of mad at God right now. And I say, have you told him? And so, well, you can't tell God that. Well, he already knows it. But you notice that David did that. The psalmist did that. But he always comes back to the compass. He always comes back to God as well. He may be frustrated, he may be worried, he may be angry even, but he always comes back to God. And you know why? Because the vertical is what fixes things. You can't fix things in the horizontal. You can only fix it with God. And so he goes back to the vertical. And we see this all too often in the scriptures. This this small gap between sorrow and joy. We want to relieve the tension, but scripture doesn't seem to do that very often. They're not at odds with one another. You know, we're uncomfortable with the tension, and so we try to resolve it, don't we? If someone is hurting, if they're crying over the loss of a loved one, what do we typically do? We hug them, we pat them on the back and say, there, there, don't cry. Why not? Why can't I cry? 
We want to remove the tension. We want to keep them from hurting and keep them from feeling pain when in Scripture, it seems to indicate it's okay to lament. It's natural. It's normal. It's needed. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel sorrow for a loved one. It's okay to hurt over the loss of a loved one. But we try to keep people from focusing on the pain. We shouldn't do that. We should get them to focus on the vertical. So that in your sorrow and in your mourning, you can also express joy. Because death doesn't have power. Death doesn't win. We do, right? It's our faith that allows us to lament and rejoice simultaneously. This isn't about a lack of faith. You have plenty of faith, and yet you still rejoice and you still feel sorrow because you look around you and say, man, the world is broken, but God's going to fix it. You look around you and you affirm that the world is a nasty place at times, but this isn't all that there is. I can rejoice because it doesn't end this way. This isn't as good as it gets. We can rejoice in the midst of sorrow because we understand that there is a bigger picture and that there's someone else in control. That's what joy is. It's seeing the bigger picture. It's seeing the vertical and not just the horizontal. So we affirm our sadness. But we also affirm our joy because we know who's in control. We know that this life isn't all that there is. Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Don't try to resolve the, the tension. Revel in both of them. You're neither an optimist or a pessimist. You're a person of authentic faith. And a person of authentic faith doesn't have to, to, to suppress the sorrow. You can hold the sorrow in one hand and the joy in another and reconcile them both. Here's the second thing. Joy is not the presence of a smile. Again, this isn't a fake it till you make it mentality. It is said that President Roosevelt pulled America through the Great Depression by sheer force of will. His charismatic personality and, and hopeless optimism were two of the biggest factors in getting America through that very dark time. But historians will tell you it was all smoke and mirrors. That President Roosevelt really wasn't that charismatic, but he felt like at a time like that, the people needed an optimist in chief. And so he put on a good face, he put on a smile, and he gave America what they needed. He played the part very well. Here's the deal. Optimism can be faked. Joy cannot. Optimism can be skin deep, but joy is rooted in the heart. Of course, as Christians, we have optimism because our hope is in something secure. This isn't a pipe dream. This isn't something like, I hope it rains or I, I hope that I get an A on the test. No, this is something bigger because our hope is in something secure. It is anchored. You know, sometimes as a minister, sometimes as elders, sometimes as Christians, you, you act better than you feel, don't you? Sometimes you're required just to, just to put on a good face and grin and bear it. Wasn't that long ago we had like three funerals up here? during the week, two of them on the same day. You know, as a minister, a lot of times you're, you're helping people through messes, and so there was a lot of that going on during the week. And it's easy to, to get you down. It's easy to, to focus on those things and, and really get discouraged. And sometimes on a Sunday, not very often, but every now and then, you put on a smile and you do the best you can. You know what that's like? You've done that. You've been there where you just act better than you feel. And that's necessary and that's needed. But joy is even bigger than that. 
Joy allows us to go a step further and say, I am going to revel in the love of Christ even though things are less than ideal, even though I'm stressed, even though I'm worried, even though I'm stressed, I know that God is in control. And therefore, in the sorrow, in the lamenting, I can smile. And that smile is not just a fake it till you make it mentality. That smile is deeply rooted in my heart that is given to God. If you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat is on the brink of an epic battle. And a great multitude of nations have gathered an overwhelming military in preparation to invade Judah. And facing a dire situation, the king does the only thing that he knows to do, which is go to God. And notice his prayer. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude that is coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. When tempted to focus on the horizontal, Jehoshaphat went vertical. He did the only thing he knew to do, to go to God. And underline, circle, highlight, whatever you need to do, those words in your Bible, because they mean everything to us. But our eyes are on you. The king zeroed in on the only one who could save him. And when we see a mess in the horizontal, that's what we do. We focus on the only one who can rescue us, the only one who can answer our prayer. And that's what Paul is saying, isn't it? Paul is deliberately trying to place the eyes of the people on the trustworthy Savior. And after doing this, after pointing out the reality of God, who is worthy of all praise and honor, then he exhorts, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Because when you revisit what God has done for you, what he is doing for you, and what he will do for you, you have no other option but to rejoice, to sing his praises. You see, here's what we do. So this is us, all right? So this glass represents us, and it's empty, okay? Nothing in it. So what do we do in order to find happiness? Well, we fill us with certain things. Maybe it's money. So we think, well, money will fill me. Money will bring me happiness, and so we pour money in. But what we find all too often is it doesn't fill us up. It gives us a little bit of happiness, But you know how much money it takes to be happy? Just a little more. And so we go to work and we say, well, if I work harder, if I fill my life with work, that's going to make me happy. But we do that and we realize, okay, that may give us a hint of happiness. I get that promotion. I get the praise. But at the end of the day, some of the most unhappy people in our society, based on happiness quotients, are people who work too much. So then we have stuff and we turn to stuff. Things around us, our possessions, all those things. We pour that in and we think, well, that'll make me happy. But no, it doesn't because stuff can never make you happy. Newer, bigger, and better will never, will never deliver because there's always something newer, bigger, and better, right? Here's the deal. The only thing that can fill us up is Jesus Christ. And when we pour in Jesus and fill our lives with Jesus, it not only fills us, we overflow I'm so glad that worked. (laughs) We overflow. And people can see the joy oozing out of us. And maybe they see us struggling, suffering, hurting, and they still see us overflowing with joy. And maybe that's a testament to who we are in Jesus. And they say, wow, what a great evangelism tool, right? Who we are in Jesus makes all the difference. I can't imagine going through the horizontal 
without having the vertical in our lives. Joy comes not from the pursuit itself, but from pursuing something bigger. So may I encourage all of us to be like Jehoshaphat, to change our focus from what's going on around us and say the words, but God, my eyes are on you. No matter what I'm dealing with, my eyes are on you. Are your eyes on God this morning? Can we help you to fix your eyes on Jesus? Do you need to shift your focus this morning? We'd love to help you with that. Maybe you're ready to begin a daily walk with God. We'd love to help you with that as well. Kevin's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you in some way, why don't you answer the invitation by coming as we stand and as we sing.